This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I am board certified in holistic nutrition. I focus on getting to root cause healing, and oftentimes that starts with a meat only elimination diet to heal the gut. Today's interview is with Mary Ruddick. For those of you that do not know her, she is a nutritionist and she focuses on getting to root cause healing. She is a Weston A. Price chapter leader. Mary Ruddick also loves to get to root cause healing. And if you listen to her journey, She can empathize with her clients and patients because she has been there and been through illness. I really enjoyed this conversation because we get into nuances and detective work to figure out why some people just don't get better in certain situations. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did chatting with Mary. Mary and I talk a lot about liver health and even consuming beef liver. And just talking about nuances about thyroid and ketogenic diets, and if they are harmful, what we really need for our hormone health. Mary's interview is a two part episode. I think there's just so much good stuff that I decided to make it two parts. And obviously, I didn't realize it would be two parts. I'm totally recording on a different day, but make sure to check out the full episode and stay tuned for part two. You don't want to miss it. Let's get right into the interview. So, thank you, Mary. Thank you so much for joining me. You know, I, I love your content and just how simplistically you talk about nutrition and how it affects other parts of the body. And I just love your message. And, and if you can just introduce yourself for those that are listening and watching. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> My name is Mary Reddick. I'm a nutritionist. And although I am in private practice as well, I spend most of my time researching with traditional cultures around the globe, what they're eating, how that relates to their health. So right now I'm in Colombia. I'm headed to Costa Rica next. Then I'll be in Panama, spent a couple of years in Africa.、Oh. Uh, so that's, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> That is so much fun.、Um, so I know your healing story, you mentioned that you were drinking soup for a really long time. So if you can just kind of share that healing journey a little bit. And then at what point should, you know, like when you're working with clients, at what point do you say, okay, maybe this diet isn't working or maybe we should just kind of continue through? Yeah, I'll, I'll probably answer the second part first, maybe just so we don't lose it because that's such an important one.、Uh, I go based on the system that we're working on. So if we're working on the nervous system, I'm going to give something six months before I decide if we need to move on, unless there's obvious signs. And, and those honestly just come from working with lots of people and seeing kind of the markers we should be hitting and when we should be hitting those and what symptoms are acceptable to push through and which ones aren't and what could be 
conveying like, oh, this isn't quite right. We're missing something here, right? So to give you an example, uh, a lot of people will go on the carnivore diet with a hormonal issue and it'll clear up. A lot of PCOS and metriosis will go away. Whereas for other people, maybe all their other things will go away and they'll have hormonal issues a year in. And there's a very different thing going on there. One person had estrogen dominance from their prior diets. And so when they go on the carnivore diet, it clears it up. The other person, it isn't estrogen dominant per se uh, going in, but they're not clearing their hormones correctly. And, And you need certain things to be able to do that, that aren't always on all of the diets that we work with. So, or you need to know little tricks for that. So, you know, I learned all of this, though, from working with so many people and and from working with very complicated cases. And that goes into my backstory. (laughs) So so I was a healthy kid and went to go research on a field station and caught a bug that went into my brain, damaged my nervous system and gave me a condition that we're now hearing a lot about because of long COVID, which is dysautonomia. There are mild cases and severe cases. I had a very severe case. I was uh, really sick with it for over 12 years. And for four of those, I really couldn't move much. (laughs) It ended up causing kidney disease, liver disease, two autoimmune thyroid diseases, neuropathy. Basically, if you name it, I've been diagnosed with it. Endometriosis, PCOS, (laughs) just throw it out there. It'll probably stick. But in learning how to reverse all of those conditions, uh, I got a lot of confidence with how powerful the body is and how capable the body is of returning and exceeding a level of health that we we would accept. And because it wasn't quick for me, you know, it was years of experimentation with different diets as it often is. And then really, to me, it seemed like a short time on the diet that worked for me, the soup diet. But to others who haven't been sick, I think they think it was a very long time. But to turn around, you know, an over decade illness in a year and a half, I I think is pretty fast. So, So it's all relative. But from going through that and because my own reversal was not intuitive, I was much worse on the diet that healed me for several months before I improved. I have the faith to hold people through that. And, and maybe that's masochistic. I don't know. So, so maybe the masochistic ones out there are going to fare better. I'm not sure, but, uh, and it's, it's certainly not that way for everyone. I mean, I work with a lot of people that don't go through getting worse first and there's different factors that go into that. But from my own experience doing the soup diet, which is a ketogenic GAPS diet, uh, and then also through working with so many people, I've just learned what the markers are and where those signs are. What are some of those markers? Maybe if you could just do like a case study or give like one example. So for the ketogenic diet, I would always give it at least three to six months before you evaluate if it's working or not, because you have to get into a state of medical ketosis uh, and ketoadaption as well. And that's not going to feel good for someone who grew up on cereal and sandwiches <laughs> and isn't metabolically flexible. So you're going to have things like hair loss and that that's natural. We can go into why people lose weight or lose hair rather on a lot of these diets. But I would give it a minimum three to six months and then evaluate. Uh, and during that time, I would be testing. If you're not sure if, it, if something is working for you, you need to know if you're actually in ketosis or not. You know, I like to relate it to accounting. Would you go on a budget without ever checking your bank account or how much money you're spending? No, you, you need to know what's happening. So if you're using it for a medical purpose, it's good to know. The four people that don't, and they just assume that they're, because they're not eating carbs, that they're in ketosis, a lot of times they're in this in-between zone where they're not using ketones for energy and they're not using glucose for energy. And that's where you get a burnout, right? And it could be three, six months in, maybe you feel great initially. And then, so, so I like people to actually know if they're in it or not and not guess, and that can be helpful. For ketosis, usually people who aren't going to do well, especially initially, are those with histamine intolerance. And maybe they don't know that they have histamine intolerance. 
But because histamines are produced every time we digest food and because fat is digested very slowly, even though it's neutral with histamines, yeah, you can really kick that histamine bucket up. So although you can absolutely use a a ketogenic diet for a histamine person, the timing is very important. You would never start with it, right? So they're they're not going to feel good on it. (laughs) They'll gain weight on it instead of lose. They'll have all the opposite reactions very quickly. Whereas uh, otherwise, a lot of times the case is that they're really not doing it long enough or they're not deep into ketosis or they're missing another trick. With carnivore, there's two things that I see often uh, if it doesn't, if it's not the miracle for for a person like it is for so many. And that would be either an ongoing or coming in very deep thiamine deficiency. Mm. Uh, That's really hard one to correct. And, and may somewhat improve on the carnivore diet. So you'd see some improvement, but then a stall and a lack of improvement from there or very serious, uh, maybe I shouldn't say serious, significant <laughs> oxalate issues. Uh, that would be something where you would, the person would typically have profuse diarrhea. And for me, I'll let that go for like 21 days on the carnivore diet. But if it goes past that, then then we need to look at oxalates because then we're starting to drain the body and all of that. That's so interesting. The oxalates, I've seen some clients with that where they are, they initially felt okay without um, any carbohydrates. And then all of a sudden they're waking up with a lot of nasal congestion, sinus, um, headaches. And then eventually we will find out that the root cause is oxalate dumping. And then they have to actually, in order to feel better, slow down the um, oxalates. Um, so actually consume some more so that they're not dumping as much. And then um, they can eventually get to a ketogenic or a carnivore diet. Um, the other thing is about thiamine. So, you know, I was going to ask you about if you think it's important to hit some of the RDIs and or the recommended daily intake, how it may not matter on a carnivore diet. And one of the concerns I have with beef only is a thiamine deficiency. And it's so interesting you brought that up. Um, I didn't realize that people come in with a thiamine deficiency. And actually it makes sense because we use it for metabolism and energy production. But can you talk a little bit about the RDI if you think we need to meet it on a carnivore diet and then about the thiamine? I'd love to talk about both two of favorite <laughs> subjects of mine. So <laughs> our vitamin requirement is very different on a carnivore diet or a ketogenic diet, or even just a Weston A. Price diet versus uh, the, the current diet. Right. The current diet creates so much depletion of our nutrients that we're constantly play, play, uh, playing catch up and we actually can't. <laughs> so, so, you know, this is why Centrum was invented and all of these kinds of things. And a lot of that has to do with food processing. For instance, I was just in Mexico and while I was there, it was phenomenal to see that almost all the corn I saw was going through the five-stage process, which releases niacin. It's very important to do that with corn. People who pop corn, the way that corn is eaten in the States, we don't do that. (laughs) And when corn was brought up to North America, especially widespread in the early 1900s, it caused an epidemic of pellagra because when you eat the corn, you get a B3 deficiency unless it's gone through the five-step process. So there's lots of foods that we eat that create deficiency. Whereas in the traditional way, they would not have. Now, when you eat a diet that's, say, ketogenic or carnivore, you're not constantly depleting nutrients. So you don't actually require the same nutrients. The RDA just goes out the door completely. That said, it doesn't mean that you don't need anything. Right. So, yeah. So usually you can get by, like, if you have nose to tail cow or beef, right, you can get by with that. Uh, and I know a lot of people will do the ribeye only, and I use the ribeye only with a lot of my clients, but ribeye salt and water, but it's, it varies by person. And you do have to watch out for vitamin C in some people, not in most, I've seen it twice and only twice where we needed some of that. And thiamine, I would say is the biggest one because thiamine B1 is so important for energy production, for our lactic acid cycle, uh, really for 
feeling good and, and also for assimilating the other B vitamins. And the issue with it is that it's not in most of our foods today. So most of us are already walking into some kind of protocol with a borderline deficiency, if not significant deficiency going in. And it's, it's almost, I mean, I, I would challenge someone to reverse it. I haven't been able to reverse it with food alone. It's the one, it's the one that I can't <laughs> so far, knock on wood. Hopefully we'll get it. But other, other ones, it's easy to fix. Like I can, with vitamin C, I can give someone adrenal glands or I can do a pine needle tea if we're not too rigid, right? There's lots of ways around it. Vitamin's a bit difficult because it's mainly found in pork and you really need to eat about two cups of pork a day to get just the basic needs. So if you're coming in in debt already, it's it's a bit problematic. So I see people with thiamine deficiencies who go on the carnivore diet, they'll either start to improve and then pitfall, or they just won't improve as much as you would expect. So let's say you and I both had uh, long COVID mm-hmm. and we both went on carnivore. Maybe one of us would thrive on it and six weeks later really feel pretty good. And the other one at six months would just be struggling. Right. Uh, yeah, that would be the difference there. And I, I think especially, gosh, Simon is such a big issue, but I have a theory and I don't think I'm alone in this theory that a lot of the people that are getting long COVID have a borderline thiamine deficiency going in because you need that to fight off viruses. Um, But that's, that's a whole other story. Yeah. It's interesting because when I just, um, when I was first getting into nutrition, I would just make graphics and I'm like, Oh, perfect. All of these meats have all of the essential nutrients and we're good. And then as I worked with people and then you get more of the harder cases where it's like, Oh, nose to tail or beef only, or these elimination diets aren't working as beautifully. What is going on? Right. So you fix the macros and it's like, okay, it's still not working perfectly. And then I started looking into the balancing of um, minerals and then even the nutrients. And then when I started looking into the actual RDI levels or the RDA of um, beef and liver. So if you're eating like 20 ounces of beef a day, plus maybe two ounce, one or two ounces of beef liver, it's still maybe 40% of your thiamine. And that's based on the daily value. So yes, we may not need as much, but if we're coming from a deficient state, as you mentioned, which I didn't even think about, but then we may need more. And that's where I think having pork, and I think the second best is probably salmon, but even that's not as high as pork, but you may want to eat a lot more pork, but then not everyone eats pork for one. And then, you know, it's maybe not as sufficient, but that's where I think eating a rainbow on a carnivore diet, um, it makes a lot more sense because I think magnesium is another one that's pretty low in just beef. And a lot of people are mineral deficient. So it's, it's really interesting. No, it's so true. It's so true. And it's quite individual. I think I teach probably, I'm guessing here, I'd I'd have to sit down, but I probably teach like 30 different variations of the carnivore diet because what works for one person phenomenally and someone else will need quite a bit more. And it's been eye-opening in my travels with all of these tribes, especially the carnivore tribes. There's way more than people talk about, by the way. I mean, there's actually like a lot, but I I was always conservative with my organ meat suggestion uh, due to the the risk of vitamin A toxicity and these kind of things that we hear uh, growing up. But the amount of organs that they eat in traditional society is phenomenal. It's so much more than I would have ever thought. (laughs) So, So that is a place that someone can go to as well, as long as, again, their histamines aren't too high and they're tolerating that and they can eat it. So uh, yes, it is, it is quite individual. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful.
talking about the liver and, you know, removing some of the stressors, I wanted to talk a little bit about consuming actual organ liver. So I have brought up the vitamin A toxicity and only because, so I think in tribes where they don't have a lot of the toxicity that we humans in this modern society do, it may be okay to eat that, especially when they don't have an abundance of food all the time and they're not snacking all the time. And so I think there's not really an issue for that. But then I think when, you know, there's people that come into a ketogenic or carnivore diet, and sometimes people are doing it for, I want to lose weight quick, but a lot of the people are coming in with metabolic disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, um, past history with just damage to the liver. And I know the liver regrows and, but it's also the place where we store a lot of the excess vitamin A. And so I just started seeing in some of my hair mineral tests in some of the ALT and AST and these people, there, there was like a, like a common prototype of a client that I started seeing it in. I just thought maybe it's some of the vitamin A because they were eating maybe two to three ounces a day and then their meats, but they weren't getting better. And if anything, they were getting worse and they were hypothyroid, which our thyroid also converts the T4 to T3. So I was in my own practice thinking, well, if you also had fatty liver disease at a point, maybe in your scenario where you're eating a lot of meats and you're eating, you know, a lot of nutrient dense foods it may be okay to just kind of take a break on the liver, um, beef liver or chicken liver, because it is high in vitamin A and your liver load may be a lot because you're showing you're not detoxing well. It's just one extra load. Yes. Totally possible possible because these folks usually are not getting rid of fat soluble anything. Yes. And so, yes. (laughs) And vitamin A is fat soluble. So they can absolutely chalk it up while someone else is detoxing it. And that can cause as many issues as a deficiency can. So I often will not use the, the high vitamin organs in the beginning, unless I'm working with something like a stage four pancreatic cancer, like we have no time. So we've got to get in there quickly, but otherwise I'll usually bring in the organs, especially in a heavy way, much later, actually, once we get their detox systems working, once they've shifted their microbiome a bit, so they've dealt with some of those toxin uh, release from the death of the bacteria, so we're not overloading the system or I'll choose a different organ. Like we'll use the thymic gland, for instance, or the kidneys, if they have histamine issues or something like that. So I tend to not give a lot of liver. And I know there are folks out there that are eating a pound of liver a day, but I think you and I probably work with the, the unique ones, right? The ones that the easy thing doesn't work for. Yeah. And or <laughs> And, and so I'm, I'm always cautious on that. And, uh, and so I'll rotate the organs. My favorite one other than the thymus is the heart, I would say, because it has the coenzyme Q10. It's a muscle. So it tastes more like meat, yeah. which is easier for people to get down in the beginning. Uh, and then, then we'll do more organ meat with my fertility clients. I think I do the most liver with them but we won't do more than an ounce a day. Okay. And that would be the max. We either do an ounce a day or liver twice a week of a normal portion. And that would be max, max that I would do. Okay. And that makes sense. I mean, so there are people that um, they'll do a hair mineral test and their copper is really low. And, you know, you, you see nutrient deficiencies and I'm like, okay, you probably need a little bit of liver. And they'll probably have seen my videos saying, what, this doesn't make sense, but it's really individual, but I I just imagine young kids that don't have their liver fully developed or people that have fatty liver disease. And there's a lot of really sick people in the carnivore community. And I thought, oh, we think maybe we should be consuming more organ meats when the carnivore is not working, but it may not be that. And you may actually be making the situation worse. And that was the only reason I brought it up. But I do think that there are some people that need it. I mean, like um, people that struggled with anorexia probably would do pretty good with some liver. It would. Yeah. Because we need to get, yes. (laughs) Plus we need to get that zinc up for them. Um, Yes. So yes, they would. I would say anyone who's chronically constipated, it should be cautioned against over-consuming liver because constipation is an indication that you're not releasing bile and you need bile to release uh, fat-soluble things. Unless someone is having a lot of rashes, fat-soluble toxins and vitamins can come out through the skin, but it, it's less common. So so constipation, chronic constipation, I'd be far more cautious about the overconsumption of liver. 
I imagine people taking notes and it's like, okay, so they said it's this, this, but it could also be that and that. So it's like, yes, okay, and so it's individual. An so no medical advice being given. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's a pattern. Okay, yeah. um, so I know in terms of folate, right? So one of the concerns I hear is it's nearly impossible with any kind of carnivorous food to meet our folate uh, values. And so as a woman that's trying to get pregnant or that is pregnant, should I supplement? Or um, I think the only way that you can maybe get that folate amount is maybe having a dozen eggs and, you know, that may be too much in one way or another, but what are your thoughts about folate? That's a great question. So I will look with my carnivore folks at their spectra cells. I'm not a fan of like serum blood tests, but I like to know what's actually getting into the cell and if the person is nourished and in my spectra cells, I, I haven't seen any folate deficiencies in my carnivore crowd. I've seen two vitamin C deficiencies. So I keep an eye out for that, but that's in 10 years of practice. <laughs> so it's not too common. The thiamine is the one I see the most for. With fertility, I find the most important. I mean, there's a few really important ones, but I think the most important is the animal form of vitamin A for fertility. It's missed all the time. People talk about these B vitamins and things like that, but vitamin A is so needed. And most of us were not raised on the animal form of vitamin A at all. I've seen that reverse a number of infertile cases. So that's really quite good. Um, I'm never against someone. uh, Well, for one, I like, I like people to take responsibility for their bodies. So if they want to take folate, take folate, (laughs) that's fine. But I haven't seen it be an issue with people getting pregnant, holding a, a healthy pregnancy or having health issues. I certainly, if I did see that be an issue, I would recommend it. And that makes sense. I haven't seen that as well. It's normally something else. It's whether like their hormones are imbalanced is not necessarily. And I think there's even some controversial research that says we may not need as much folate as they say that we need for pregnant women. Just shifting topics a little bit. There's a lot of uh, conversation lately about a ketogenic diet or a meat only diet being less than optimal for thyroid health. And I wanted to get your opinion on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that's the case at all. I really feel the opposite, uh, not only from my own N1, but also from what I've seen it working in practice for a decade. I, I have seen so many people reverse their thyroid condition on a ketogenic and also on a carnivore diet. Uh, so I would say if, if someone's having an issue, maybe they're not actually in ketosis or they're dealing with deficiencies. And there's five deficiencies that can prevent a thyroid from fully correcting. The thyroid really needs quite a bit of iodine. And that's difficult when we live in an, a time when we have bromide everywhere and chlorine and fluoride and other things that can block the iodine receptors. We also need the fat soluble vitamins like vitamin D. We need zinc. There's a number of things, selenium, that the the thyroid really needs to function well. And so if someone goes into a diet and they're not addressing that, that could be an issue, of course. If a person is not addressing the autoimmune nature. So for a lot of For a lot of folks, I find they'll go on carnivore and they won't know if they're in ketosis or not. And that can be honestly disastrous. Sometimes all it takes is uh, switching the energy source. And then someone could have been on carnivore for two years and now they're feeling better. So that's something to address as well. But no, I, when I have thyroid cases, I always go ketogenic and I sometimes go carnivore. So yeah, I'm, I'm on the other side. Sure. What would you say is the, I mean, if you're measuring blood ketones, what would be that number for you? For thyroid, I would say 2.0 and above waking consistently every day, four months. Wow. Okay. I would look for it's a different condition, like neuropathy. Then I want more like a 4.0. Okay. Wow. And so anything under two, you would say that they are not in a ketogenic state. They technically are in a ketogenic state, but I don't see the same reversal of conditions under a 2.0. So I like to get people above a two because then if they fluctuate throughout the day, we're still in therapeutic ketosis and there's no question of the body bouncing back between uh, glucose burning and ketone burning. I found that to be very important to pick a team, whichever one you're on, doesn't have to be forever, but for now to pick a team because so many people that are compromised with an illness, they simply do not have the capability to turn protein into an energy source. Like 
a healthy person doing the carnivore diet, right? A weightlifter, no problem. They can do that. They don't have to worry. But many of the people that I work with, they're far too ill. Their body is not going to go through those loops. So yeah, I would, I would pick a team. No, and, and I'm fully on the same page as you. I think if you use protein as the energy source, when it's mostly a building block source, it becomes a lot harder for people to sustain and have energy. And then the other thing I see with a lot of these ketogenic and even the carnivore diet is that um, a lot of people under eat, right? So finally women get to lose weight because they're not hungry anymore. And so then they start under eating and they're just going by their hunger cues, but we don't really have hunger cues once we all of a sudden are in a ketogenic or low carb state. And so I think that's where my guess is where some of the hypothyroid symptoms are coming up, not because of the diet itself, but maybe not using the correct levers to heal. Have you seen that? Yeah. I have seen that. Uh, I've also seen uh, a general miseducation as to lab work on a ketogenic diet. It is different. So for instance, when a thyroid person or honestly, any of us are in ketosis, our T3 should be low. (laughs) We don't need as much T3. (laughs) So if it was at the normal rate for someone on a glucose burning diet, then something would actually be wrong. So doctors will see that lab work and say, oh, something's not right with your thyroid and people will run with that. And that's not actually the case. The TSH, those are different. Those should be the same, but T3 should be much lower on a ketogenic diet. So I also see that. And I, I do also see just a lack of uh, deep nutrition. You know, we, we have this issue with, we're taking a population who has been on a very compromised diet and we've been really programmed to think like salads and eating light is healthy. So even if we do this for our health, there's still a bit of a cognitive block that goes on. And, uh, and very often I find that people are not consuming enough fat or not consuming enough protein. And we need those things for very essential functions. Like Protein is so needed for your feel-good chemicals. You just cannot make all of those good, delicious bliss chemicals unless you have enough protein. And we women tend to eat a lot less protein, <laughs> like a lot. And some of us, many of us come to this after trying like vegetarian, vegan diets, you name it, right? Many people have, have come to this by, by a survival mechanism. And so there can be a zinc deficiency going on, which makes you more opposed to protein. And so So you're doing it for your health, but you're not really eating enough. So, so that can be an issue as well. Yeah. And, you know, I found the same thing with my thyroid and my T3 markers dropped while I was on a ketogenic diet. And some people said that I have hypothyroid and I should be telling people that to people. And, and it's interesting because during that whole time I was nursing my son till he was five, had my menses, like when uh, later on in that time period, and then consistently, and I felt better than ever. Right. I, was no longer struggling from an eating disorder and um, being plant-based. And so it's just, maybe if your symptoms are that you have low energy, then you can look into the T3. But if you feel fine, which I do, then it's not as much of a concern, but there's just, you know, a population of people that believe that if your marker is low of, of the T3, when you're on a ketogenic diet, that is another sign that this diet is not ideal because you're showing signs of hypothyroid. Right. And I think it takes it out of the context of traditional diets. I mean, one thing we can always do if we're confused by all the conflicting information, which is understandable, is say, has this ever existed in a traditional society and been done multi-generationally? If so, it's probably pretty safe, right? And, And the ketogenic diet is one that fits all of those markers. So I I so support people with thyroid conditions going by how they feel. Like I remember when my thyroid was hyper, I knew how that felt. (laughs) And when it was hypo, I knew how that felt too. So, so you can really go by how you feel. And in the same vein, so many people have gone through the, especially women, but men too have gone through that struggle of knowing for decades that their thyroid wasn't right, right? But no one listens to them because their lab work is correct. So I think I think we need to take the lab work with a grain of salt as long as we feel good. I agree. I agree. And then this, um, and in the same vein, if we're not feeling well, then if we can use the lab work as one metric, but not the end all be all, which I think people do, especially with minerals. I don't think, like I always say to my clients that a lot of our blood work is just 
we want to always be in homeostasis. And so it's not going to show you if there's a true cellular deficiency, it'll just try to keep things in balance until there's illness. And so you don't want to heavily rely on your blood work for everything, because for everything, for, for example, with potassium, it's mostly in our cells. And just if your potassium is always good on the blood work, it doesn't necessarily mean you're not deficient. Oh, not at all. And it doesn't say what your vasopressin hormone is doing, which regulates all of these. So it could be going up and down and up and down. And it just happens that when you had that snapshot of the blood draw, it was okay there. But no, it's very true, especially with vitamins and minerals. The serum doesn't tell us too much. You could have an enormous amount of potassium in your serum and a deficiency in the cell. Um, And I had a client recently like that because I recommended she take potassium based on some other tests other than the blood work. And she was like, but my blood work says I have high potassium. So um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Um, So what about supplementing with iodine? You know, there's that Wolf Wolf Tchaikov study that basically has made everyone scared of supplementing iodine, even though that was radioactive iodine, not the one that we use. Um, Thank you for talking about that, by the way. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I tend to bring up a lot of controversial things, I guess, but you know, what's your opinion with supplementing with iodine? Is it something we should be scared of if we suffer with thyroid imbalances? It is one of my biggest crutches that I use in reversing thyroid conditions, and that includes Hashimoto's. So yeah, thyroid, um, the thyroid really needs a lot of iodine. And what you, what you said is absolutely correct. The study that made everyone afraid was from a form that is toxic. (laughs) No one should be having that. There are many different types of iodine, but the, the iodine that belongs in our body, that's in kelp and seaweed and, and other things is, is incredibly important, not just for the thyroid, honestly, for every cell to work. And so I always use it. If a, if a person is not autoimmune thyroid, then we get right in there and we start working with it. If it's a Hashimoto's person, they're often very afraid of iodine. I'm sure you've seen this. They've been like really warned or they've even been rebellious and tried something and then had a terrible reaction. (laughs) And that's often because if someone is deficient in iodine already and they start taking iodine, it's going to start displacing the other chemicals from the cell. So the bromide, the fluoride, and the chlorine, and especially the bromide is typically what I see. And that can be brutal. It can be a very, like, you can get a lot of symptoms right away from that. And so one could assume, oh, it's the iodine. That makes me feel really bad, but it's actually, it's a bit more complicated than that. Yes. So with my autoimmune folks, we'll do selenium for at least a month, sometimes six weeks first. And then, uh, and then we'll start very slow with the iodine and then build up. But then I see wonderful things. Yeah. I had a client that was doing carnivore and she kept losing her hair and started feeling hypothyroid symptoms. I think her family struggles with, um, hypothyroid, maybe some Hashimoto's. And so I recommended the iodine. She was at first very cautious, but that was the thing that she needed. That was her root cause. And so now she's a big advocate for iodine. Um, and she's healing and she feels wonderful on a carnivore diet and it was the thing that she needed. And so now she supplements, I think even 50 milligrams. And we think that's so much, but um, I read something somewhere where it said in the mid up to the mid 1900s, because I think the Wolf Tchaikov study came out 1948. So before then doctors used to recommend iodine and they used to recommend one gram of potassium iodide, which has like seven, 800 milligrams of iodine. And that was normal back then. And when a kid had a sinus congestion or a viral load, they would give like five drops of maybe, I don't know, um, six milligrams of iodine in their orange juice. And people would get over their colds with this. But once that study came out, it became a thing of no one should be consuming iodine. And it's so unfortunate. It is so unfortunate. And I have to wonder if it's not leading to some of the compromised health in our youngest generation because iodine is incredibly important in the first trimester for a proper development of the fetus and especially proper brain development. 
And we're having all of these neurological issues with our children. And we don't have much iodine in our food. The iodine and salt, you know, evaporates (laughs) after about 10 days. So uh, we don't have a great source of it. And especially as we go more and more plant-based as a society, we're not going towards things like kelp. We're going to like corn. (laughs) So, So we're really, I think, quite low. And back in the day, iodine, I mean, there was a almost religious fervor about it because it had reversed all of these conditions that they thought were mental. It used to be that when you had a thyroid condition, it obviously affects the brain and your mood so much that many people would end up in the the mental institutions. And when they figured out that you could use iodine, it freed up all this space in the mental institution. And, and so it was used quite widely. And, and it's interesting because really at the turn of the century, we were getting on to a lot of things. Uh, Glyconutrients were being used to regulate the immune system and iodine. And we had some really wonderful remedies. And then antibiotics came out. And that was amazing because we had just had the yellow fever pandemic and the Spanish flu. And now you could save your family members. So we didn't know about the long-term consequences. We didn't know about the other things, but it just kind of accidentally everything else that actually worked very, very well. And I think on top of that, in the then 1900s, when the oil moguls also took over the medical industry, I think that also, I'm sure, I'm sure it was like all of the things together just made all of these simple, even the organs, the iodine, these simple things that don't really make a lot of money that could heal people. And that even fat is so good for our steroid hormones for, you know, just offspring and for children to develop, right? Cholesterol is most of our fat in our brains, but we are demonizing cholesterol, all of these things. It's just, it's just unfortunate because a lot of these things are really free. And if we could just eat it in our foods and maybe supplement a little bit of iodine and they can be life-changing things. I had a client that was not even 18 and she was diagnosed with Hashimoto's. Um, She didn't even clean up her diet hundred percent. So she eats kind of clean, but um, she still eats greens and, you know, but she is now taking some iodine and it has changed her life where she was completely depressed. Like what's wrong with me? Why am I not like my friends? And now living a more normal life. And it's just, and she didn't even make the big changes in the diet and granted she's young and she probably will need to, but it was the iodine that made the biggest difference for her mental health. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's incredible. It's incredible. And some people are lucky in that way. They're, they're just not as damaged. And so they'll recover with much less intervention. And that's wonderful. But you're right. It's all of these things really could be done at home with the same price as buying groceries. (laughs) And, And we could be reversing just impossible conditions without spending any extra money. Right. What about thyroid fasting adrenals? You know, there's um, some of that thought with the, oh, you can get hypothyroid on a ketogenic diet. There's also the thought of, well, fasting kind of does the same. Thoughts on that? I haven't seen it. So (laughs) I, I love fasting. I, I love fasting with my clients. I love fasting personally, uh, especially short fasting, like under three days. I see a lot of benefits from those and from the daily fast as well. I haven't seen anyone get into hypothyroidism or damage their thyroid through it. I know there are people that report that, so I'm not denying that that happens, but I would want to know what's going on there. And also what the lifestyle is like, right? Because The thyroid, the adrenals, these are all part of the hormonal system and the hormones respond far more to what we are doing than what we are eating. (laughs) And so if our lifestyle isn't really quite on point, then our hormonal system is not going to regulate. The other thing I would look at as well is the fatty acid balance. Uh, So often if we have a high omega-6, there can be a huge problem there. And that's not going to be an issue for everyone. I've seen lots of people heal who couldn't afford to buy the nicest of the nice meat, but it is a real issue for some people. So I would be looking at that as well, but I have not seen it be a stress. I mean, my take of the adrenals is that the issue is not in the adrenals. (laughs) That's my take, uh, really. (laughs) 
because the adrenals are so robust. You know, you can carve them out of someone in a day, they grow back. Uh, usually if something's wrong in the adrenal glands, it is far higher up where you're, you're looking pituitary, hypothalamus, thyroid, and all of those need sufficient cholesterol, very stable blood sugar, and then appropriate information of light and dark calmness, all of that. So, so I always look higher up. If someone comes in with, with adrenal fatigue for me, I kind of wipe that diagnosis. I don't disregard it. They're sick, but I, I look deeper. Yeah. <laughs> someone's dealing with that. Find it interesting that, you know, we can eat for 20, 30 years of our life, all of the bad foods, you know, pull all nighters. And we, we, we just don't take care of our bodies. And then all of a sudden we try to be healthy on a specific diet. And a, a lot of times it's for weight loss. And then maybe we add in a little bit of fasting and then it's that one, it's the one lever, right? It's the one fasting and it's not the 20, 30 years of not taking care of the hormones. And it's, I just find it very interesting. Um, no, I agree. One of the things that um, I saw you mention is that some people are stuck in the quarry cycle instead of getting into other cycles for energy. So can you talk about how maybe some people are using lactic acid instead of um, the other forms of um, ATP production? Yeah, almost everyone I work with, and that's probably the population that comes to see me, but almost everyone I work with is stuck in the lactic acid, the Cori cycle, and they're not moving to the ATP cycle. And that's, you kind of know if you're in that camp, if you wake up feeling hit by a bus, if you try to exercise, you feel terrible for two weeks. Uh, if you drink a glass of orange juice, you feel a bit drunk and you don't feel good. You won't want to drink it again. There are signs that your lactic acid is too high. And that can be from a couple of things that can be from lacking the uh, Nissel 1924 bacteria that eats lactic acid that can get wiped out very easily with some antibiotics. But a lot of times it's because your body has been chronically ill and you switched into the emergency energy system, which is the lactic acid cycle. So you're, you're using and producing lactic acid for energy. Now, when your lactic acid is too high, it can create anxiety pain, soreness, all sorts of things. And so I usually work on bringing someone back. Definitely my chronic fatigue, whether it's fatigue from MS or CFS or long COVID, I, I always see it in those folks, right? <laughs> They're in debt for energy, significant debt. So we'll work with thiamine for that. We'll maybe work with Mudaflor. And then of course we switch the energy system. For many of those folks, they can't use glucose appropriately because glucose is gonna create more lactic acid. Right. Uh, a lot of healthy foods, honestly, we'll drive that up as well. Like, uh, well, you know, healthy uh, ferments, we'll do it. Dairy, we'll do it. So there's lots of whole traditional foods that that will drive up lactic acid that may not be appropriate for a period of time while you're correcting that. But we'll, we'll use thiamine to get at that. And then a ketogenic diet, uh, a real one. <laughs> and Yes. And then the Mudaflor. One of my struggles with my clients with, I guess, low, slower metabolisms, hypothyroid are, is that their digestion is just slow in general. And so then when we eat fat, which is, you know, a slower digested macronutrient, <laughs> It, it just adds to it and then they don't feel as well. And sure, we could use digestive enzymes, but how have you kind of dealt with that, you know, using a, a macronutrient that kind of slows down the metabolism or, you know, just keeps us fuller for longer on pe with people that have slower metabolisms? Great question. Yeah, because I'll often get asked like, well, I have gastroparesis, so I don't think I can do this, that kind of thing. Yeah, we go in slowly is what I do. So I inform their body to start breaking it down. So we might start with just adjusting breakfast and we'll just go low carb. We won't go high fat. And then we'll adjust lunch the next week and then dinner, and then we'll test their fat. So we'll, we'll really track with these folks. I don't track with all my clients, but with these folks, we'll really track so that we can see how many grams of fat they're consuming in a day and what they're tolerating. Like, okay, are they having regular stools on this? Great. So this is 50 grams. They're breaking down 50 grams a day. Next week, let's try 60 grams. So very, very slow increase will often inform the body. I find 
with thyroid, getting the, the gut moving is more of an issue of getting the nervous system moving. So again, that can be thiamine. So if they tolerate pork, we can use that. <laughs> thiamine is really important for that. Also melatonin. See, most people with thyroid disease are not producing enough melatonin at night. And, and it's pretty difficult to do these days, to be honest. You've really got to black out the curtains. And I, I would imagine your crowd knows what to do. But, <laughs> but all the lifestyle things are very important for getting melatonin going. So with my thyroid folks, we'll really focus on that. We'll get them off all electronics by 7 p.m. Really calm evening, meditating in the dark, right? Then in the morning, they're up looking at light. So then they're stimulating the melatonin for the next day. And I say all of that because melatonin is the master hormone of the nervous system of the gut lining. So if we need to move stool through, we need melatonin. So I'll, I'll usually work on it through that way. Uh, sometimes I'll use crutches. It depends. I, I work with some purists who don't want anything. And so that would be different for them. And then for those that aren't, we might use something like magnesium citrate, especially if they're, if they are an oxalate person, right? Cause the citrate form combined in some forms of chronic constipation or from that. Um, but constipation can very often be hormonal as well. So the sex hormones, and if someone is, hypothyroid or hyper, it's not too uncommon to see them also have endometriosis or PCOS or any of those. And if that's the case, then we've got to look at the bile because the bile is not clearing those hormones for the person. And that's going to cause constipation. Yeah. That estrogen reuptake is just never ideal. And then it, the constipation can also be SIBO. So it's always Absolutely. something else. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you are trying to increase melatonin, do you ever use the supplemental version of melatonin or? Okay. Don't. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I'm fine if someone wants to do that. I'm not against it. I haven't seen people taking it be an issue. You know, we've all been warned okay. if you take it, the body will stop, but I haven't seen the need okay. to take it. I find the hormones respond to lifestyle things very well. Like I just had a slightly different topic, but I just had a young man who increased his testosterone by 800% and he didn't wow. take anything, you know? So through your lifestyle things you, and, and your diet, you can really often get those, those hormones. I mean, bringing up testosterone, you know, some of the other banter is that, um, testosterone drops on a ketogenic diet. I've seen my clients, female and male, that when they eat enough fat, because it's goes down that cholesterol pathway and they are supporting like their cortisol, then their testosterone will also increase. Yeah. What are, what are your thoughts with that? I mean, how do we support testosterone? So testosterone needs a few things. Um, if we're going through an epidemic of low testosterone levels across the board, males and females, and it's really a tragedy because for females, it's something that gives us energy. We need a bit of it. And for males, it's what's, it's what makes them a good man. It makes them calm and statesmen and leaders. And typically, if we're seeing low testosterone, it's from estrogen dominance in both cases, typically. So often I will put people on a ketogenic diet to get the, the testosterone up. I'll have them lifting weights if they're healthy enough, because that's very important for the men. Uh, so the men will do uh, weightlifting and then we'll do cordyceps tea, which is really good for raising testosterone. And then we'll change some of their lifestyle things as well. So for instance, um, they're not allowed to snuggle too much. They can have like five minutes and then they've got to separate because oh, uh, couples when they, I know this sounds funny, but couples when they snuggle uh male and female if the male snuggles too long he actually starts to produce estrogen so yeah i know oh my god i know there's That's very so small things that actually affect this i could go on for an hour just about this topic <laughs> but um so we'll do the lifestyle things as well and i'll usually get the 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 man into a man den or out in the woods men actually need to spend some time alone for their hormones. This is well studied. So, so they need to go and chop wood or they need to go into a manden. Uh, if they're with humans all the time, they actually become estrogen dominant. So that's, that's very important. Yeah. So we'll do that as well. So I would guess if someone is their testosterone is lowering, which honestly isn't something I've, I've seen on a ketogenic diet, I would guess that they're not clearing hormones through the liver. And so even though they're not on a diet that would produce estrogen, they're probably not clearing it. And so then I would do, if they're on the carnivore diet and they're okay, just staying off 
fiber, but not, but okay with plant liquids, we would do something like chicory tea because the chicory would bind to the excess estrogen and pull that out. But it would depend if they were just a ketogenic person, we'd load them up on very well-cooked broccoli because that can bind. And if they were someone who wanted to do a supplement, then we would do dim. But, uh, but typically a ketogenic diet should regulate and really boost testosterone. Well, you know, what's interesting with the broccoli is because I, I consider broccoli, one of the safer plant foods to introduce, um, you know, but there's a lot of thought of broccoli is so bad for the um, thyroid cruciferous vegetables are so toxic. So I I just was like, what is going on? So it, yeah, I'm just curious. I almost feel like I'm a closeted broccoli fan because it's so hated, but look, you and you and I are both ex thyroid people. And I, I eat a lot of broccoli. Like I'll go years where I'll eat like three to six cups a day. Like I like, I know that's not natural. I'm not suggesting it. I love broccoli. So, um, I, I don't let people do raw broccoli, but cooked broccoli, I'm all for it. it. Binds to the excess hormones. It's not too high in oxalates. It's delicious. It's a great vehicle for fat. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad to know another broccoli lover. Yeah. I mean, I, um, <laughs> I, I just did some research on all the plant toxins. Uh, so I, I kind of try to make it two layer where I use the diet. So I use the gaps diet. I use AIP and a bunch of other like SCD whole 30. And I just saw what's your, you know, anti-list and what's your pro list. And then from there, I looked at the anti-nutrients. So, you know, lectins, phytates, oxalates, and all, and then even salicylates and glucosinolates. And then broccoli was one of the better foods. And so I was like, I know people don't like broccoli in the carnivore space, but if you're going to reintroduce, I think broccoli may actually be one of them. And so it's on my top 10. If you want to add back veggies, it's probably one of the the more benign ones. And I know most carnivores don't agree. They think the fruits are safer and I don't always agree with that, but it's just interesting. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Oh my gosh, it's so nice to meet someone. <laughs> um, no, I feel the same. And I, I also like some of the ones that aren't as cared for too. Like I love onions and garlic and carrots. And these all have things that can regulate the immune system, of course, if they do well in the person. But yeah, I find the the broccoli to not be as much of an issue. Whereas I, I do see a lot of issues with fruit. Um, not for everyone. Some people yeah. thrive on it. But yeah, I've just seen so many issues with fruit. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when I first joined the carnivore community and it really helped with my mental health, my energy, my mood, this is the answer. This one way of eating and beef only or ruminant meats first for an elimination, maybe. But what I realized when you work with the individuals, and I think that's why it's so important to work with individuals and know that they challenge your thoughts and your thinking. And when it doesn't work, you're like, okay. So I used to eat a pound of spinach every day before I was, um, uh, before when I was plant-based and I never had the oxalate dumping. I looked at my old blood work and I do see oxalates in my urine, but I never really had the dumping. So it wasn't an issue for me. So if I went by my N equals one, I would say, nah, oxalates aren't a big deal. But I have clients that really suffer and they can't do carnivore for a temporary bit until they uh, reduce some of that oxalate load. And so then I realize it is a thing. And so I think it's really important to, you know, watch people and follow people and uh, work with people that have this, I guess, arsenal of working with so many different harder cases, because then you, it challenges you, pushes the envelope of there is no one answer for everybody. So Broccoli for us may be fine, but for some people, no. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's so true. It's really humbling when you work with humans because, uh, because you could be doing the same thing for like 200 people and then you'll come across someone where it doesn't work for. And so you, you learn so much more from that. And I think the more and more you do, it makes you more flexible and less frigid. And, uh, and also, yeah, like, how wonderful that oxalates were not an issue for you, even though you had oxalates. I find for a lot of people, they're not. I find a lot of people will uh, read about histamines or oxalates and assume that, oh, these are terrible things and I need to avoid them. And and it, it's not for everyone. So like, for instance, I had uh, oxalates and I had kidney disease, right? And I find people with kidney disease, diabetes type one and seizures 
you've got to watch oxalates a lot more because those are the few folks that can get thrown into acidosis, right? Uh, because of the electrolyte issues with vasopressin. But for a lot of other people, it might just be some diarrhea or a rash or nothing if their body eliminates them fine. So yeah, I always go by symptoms. If they can get over the the oxalate diarrhea quickly, then we ignore it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's a good thing. The concern I have, if someone's carnivore and they're like, okay, now I kind of want variety. I've healed a lot. I think it's a great idea to then start adding back, right? Because this is real life. I would hope that people can travel and try the foods in those um, parts of the world. And so with that thought, I don't think it's necessarily safe that everyone just starts fruit because the animal, the plant kingdom wants the fruits to be eaten, you know, that kind of logic, because one of the concerns I have is that when we eat a lot of proteins, um, we produce a lot of purines and by itself, it may be okay, but people that suffered with gout or that have high uric acid levels and then add fructose to it, which honey and fruits are really high in, then they have that risk of that cycle going off a little bit more. and then. You know, so I don't know why everyone's and a lot of people that go carnivore had that insulin resistance and gout. And so for me, it's just mind boggling of why would you pick fruit first? And especially for even somebody like me that had an eating disorder, the apple may make me want to eat the apple pie. Right. So I would go for the broccoli first because that makes more sense to me. Um, I totally agree. I bring people on vegetables and I, I, it's rare if I use fruits beyond the berries, Mm -hmm. uh, unless it's maybe like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's. I don't find those folks as sensitive to the fruits, but you know, I've seen so many cases of fatty liver disease reversed when people take out fructose. And I've seen so many other things improve like fibromyalgia and nerve conditions and pain conditions as well. And part of that might be my own N1. When I ate fruit, the pain just went through the roof. So I should put that out there that I I have a little shade, (laughs) but I do like how it tastes, you know, and I'm not anti, I just went on a fruit tour. I just don't eat it in my day-to-day life. But, um, but it has been surprising, especially, I think, I think where it's coming from is that big study on Mm omega-6 and when omega-6 levels were high, you saw all of this disease. And then when you had fructose as a portion of it, the disease was less, I think. Yeah, I'll I'll share that study with you. I think that's where it's coming from because a lot of the folks that are proponents of the fruit consumption came from the very anti-omega-6 crowd. And if you look at this study, it makes you want to eat fructose and fructose tastes delicious. And there's a lot of ways we can convince ourselves this is a great idea. It's fruit. It's in the Bible. We should eat it. So, (laughs) but, but, uh, you know, the way that fruit was eaten traditionally is, is very seasonal and short term, and that's in healthy individuals. So what I have my clients do is we usually get them healthy first. And then once they're in remission, if they want to do fruit, just do it seasonally kind of thing is what we'll do instead of like bringing in lots of fruits and honey and all of that. And I, and I do the same thing. And it's interesting because if we were to, you know, a lot of people bring up the Hatsa and the carnivore community because they eat honey and it's like, well, I think they eat honey, maybe three months of the year. And I don't think they even eat it every day. And so it's just interesting that we extrapolate and not all of us are from the Hansa too. You know, I don't think like, I don't think I have any of that in me. So it's just, we all have to find the right diet that works for us. So I may do more better with a little bit more fish than beef, for example, I don't know, but you know, it's just, everyone varies. And it's just interesting that these one studies, then we extrapolate and science is good, right? Because that's how we find ways to heal and further medicine, but it also almost is damaging when we don't honor our own symptoms because everyone is so different. When we follow certain diets, some people feel better, some people don't, but we try to fight through it and say, I'm just going to keto harder. I'm going to carnivore harder. I'm going to try a different diet and do that one harder. And it's just, sometimes we have to just honor our innate wisdom. Yes, absolutely. I could not agree more. And I think I think what gets lost, you know, there's the benefit and then the cost to these studies. That study that I brought up, mm-hmm. it, it it's already showing how disastrous a high percentage of omega-6 is. Okay. So the takeaway could be, let's focus on traditional fats where this doesn't happen. But instead, I think people have taken away, oh, but if I eat fruit, I can get away with it. <laughs> so... And it's, and I think, 
you know, so often people that are chronically ill, they don't have the best detox channels, right? The liver isn't functioning perfectly. The kidney isn't functioning perfectly. And that may be what set them up to get chronically ill. Whereas, you know, their friend, their, their sibling didn't, didn't become ill. And so I think anything that takes a load off of a major detox organ is going to be beneficial. And there's no question that fructose bogs down the liver when consumed in large amounts over periods of time. Of course, not in small amounts, that kind of thing. That's fine (laughs) and seasonally. But what I found is that when people go and visit the Hudza or these groups, they'll come away and they'll be like, this is the way to do it. And that group doesn't do it that often. <laughs> like, like maybe they'll have it for a month or two, you know? So when I was with the Hudsa, I was with several different groups. Uh, the honey was all larvae. It wasn't sweet. Uh, it was, you were eating insects actually. And they were really just showing us because it was quite out of season. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, what we saw more was brain consumption and lung consumption and wild game, almost no plants. And it would be very different going in a, in a different season. So, so yeah, I think these quick takeaways can be dangerous if we don't look at the body as a whole. And if we don't go by how we're feeling after we've progressed, right? So obviously in the first few months of a dietary change, you may not have your own intuition. You may have your microbiome's overgrowth intuition that's telling you to eat rice because <laughs> it needs to stay alive, right? Um, but once you've been doing something for a long time, you're six months in, you're 12 months in, and you're not feeling well, and you kind of know that this thing doesn't feel good for you, but someone tells you it's good for you. I think that's when you can listen to your yeah, intuition. And that's when normally people come and work with me. And I'm sure with you, it's after they've tried that and they got to a period where things they know for sure aren't working. All right, guys, make sure to stay tuned for part two. It comes out next week. You guys know the drill. Make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys next week. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.